0: This
1: is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and when Jesse plays music like that, I know what's coming up. He loves great practical jokes, and so do we here on the show, and he's been giving us any number of stories about great practical jokesters of the 20th century in this country. And boy, have we had some doozies in the past. We had daredevils like Lawn Chair Larry, who violated L.A.'s airspace laws while floating on a lawn chair attached to weather balloons... We had a hacker like Captain Crunch who broke into the national phone system using a whistle found in a cereal box so he and his buddies could make free phone calls long distance. And of course, Alan Abel who convinced the world that we should put pants on barnyard pets. That was my favorite. And by the way, this show loves the show Impractical Jokers. My little girl and I can sit down for hours on end and watch those guys on true TV just, well, crack each other up. And Americans are a fun loving group of people. And that brings us to today's story about hackers and jokesters and hoaxers. And today we bring you the tale of an old school media hacker named Jim Moran, whose personal brand of trickery is sure to entertain. Here's Jesse.
2: You can't buy publicity like this. Jim Moran was called, at various times, super salesman number one, America's number one prankster, and the last great bunco artist in the profession of publicity. He became famous during the 30s and 40s for devising outrageous stunts on behalf of his clients. He was a publicist and press agent for film studios, manufacturers, retailers, and Washington politicians from the 30s to the 80s. In 1989, Time Magazine ranked him as the supreme master of that most singular marketing device. The publicity stunt.
3: There is no such thing as bad publicity.
2: Born in 1907, Moran was the son of a chimney maker. When he was 12 years old, he was riding a bicycle and was hit by a car. The driver was so relieved to see that Moran was unharmed that he gave him $100, which Moran immediately used to take a train to New Orleans. Instead of going to college, Moran took a variety of jobs, including a tour guide in Washington, an airline executive, and a manager of a studio where congressmen recorded speeches for local radio. His favorite technique was to test the validity of popular sayings. In August of 1938, he traveled to Juneau, Alaska on behalf of General Electric, where he sold ice to an Eskimo. He then returned to Hollywood with 200 pounds of Arctic ice, claiming that it was the purest ice in the world. He sold 10 pounds of it to an actress who used it for facial treatments. In 1939, to promote a real estate development, he literally searched for a needle in a haystack. The search took him 82 and a half hours before he finally found it near the bottom and slightly to the left of center. In 1940, he led a live bull through a New York City china shop. The ball didn't damage anything. However, some of the china was broken when Moran's client nervously backed into a table. And that's just the first three publicity stunts that Jim Moran pulled off in his lifetime career of getting people's attention for a living.
0: That advertisement had no effect
2: on me whatsoever. In June of 1946, he sat on an ostrich egg for 19 days, 4 hours, and 32 minutes in order to hatch it. He did all of this while wearing a feather headpiece with a foot-high ostrich plume. Do they bite?
4: No, they kick, but they aren't very bright. If you lie down flat, he can't see you. That's a male. He has to guard the eggs. But if you can distract him...
0: How do I distract a male ostrich?
4: The
2: stunt was designed to promote a movie called The Egg and I. The baby ostrich, when hatched, was named Ossip Moran. He donated it to a zoo. In November of 1946, Jim Moran tricked the Los Angeles Art Association into displaying an abstract painting of his own creation, described by him as, quote, the worst thing I could think of.
5: Okay, let's just put a happy little mountain, something about like
4: that. and Let's paint several little happy trees.
2: He disguised the fake art as work of a previously unknown artist known as Naromji, which is his own name spelled backwards with a J-I added for confusion. The work hung beside paintings by well-known modern artists at the time and was given a price tag of one thousand dollars. That was a ton of money in 1946. The painting was even described by the Los Angeles Times as, quote, an astonishing conglomeration of paint, chalk, magazine cutouts, and fingernail polish. It consisted of a series of swirls and triangles, and in the spaces in between the lines, the artist had placed small pictures that included a fish, a head, an arm, eyes, and a leg cut out from a lingerie advertisement. But the Art Association was just a tad embarrassed when, at the end of the month, the publicist slash prankster Jim Moran revealed that he was the true author of the painting. The Art Association eventually criticized the hoax, arguing that it could make it harder for young unknown artists to get their work displayed. One more of the dozens of pranks that Jim Moran here pulled off over the years was in 1947. During the crown prince of Saudi Arabia's trip to the United States, Moran showed up at Ciro's restaurant in Hollywood disguised as the prince. He was accompanied by fake guards and servants. During his meal, he tipped the waiters and band members with large gems. On his way out of the restaurant, the goatskin bag holding the gems accidentally broke scattering the jewels all over the floor. One of his fake servants started to pick them up, but Moran imperiously waved his hand to signal him to stop, because picking up the jewels was beneath the dignity of a prince. He then left the restaurant, and upon his departure, the Hollywood elite dining at the restaurant immediately scrambled to snatch up the jewels, all of which were actually just dime store trinkets of no value. And those are just a few of the many publicity stunts and flat-out hoaxes that Jim Moran pulled off during his long career. Jim Moran died in Englewood, New Jersey, in October of 1999. His obituary, written in the New York Times, read, His life might be described by two symbols, the exclamation point and the dollar sign. He pushed outrageousness to the outer limits to seize the attention of the buying public. He got the attention he desired. Even his colleagues in the publicity business, a species not given to promoting much of anything without being paid, gave him respect. And that is the story of publicist, hoaxer, and prankster Jim Moran. This is Our American Stories. And great job, as
1: always, Jesse, and we want more. That's all I can say. We want more of these. And just as my little girl and I can't get enough of impractical jokers, I don't think Americans can ever get sick of good and decent and sometimes even on the edge practical jokes by the way don't try practical jokes on people who can't take it that's cruel but for people who can bring it on baby that's what we say this is lee habib this is our american stories impractical jokester hoaxer jim moran story here on our american stories Ali Habib and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our series called The Founding, where we bring you the never told stories of things we all love and how the heck they came to be. We brought you Home Depot's story, Walmart's, Myers, Ford's, Cancer Treatment Centers of America, and so many more. And today our own Alex Cortez brings us the founding story of one of your favorite foods. At least it's one of Alex's. Take it away.
6: A young man named Ralph F. Steyer dropped out of high school to work, to work to support his parents and his five younger siblings. It was the Great Depression, and he was just one month away from graduating. He married a girl named Alice, and they had nothing, nothing but a dream that they were going to be successful. Their future son, Ralph C. Stayer said they didn't know where their next meal was coming from and they weren't going to live like that. So when the couple could, they saved $11,000 to be exact so that they could purchase a little sausage shop in, of all towns, Johnsonville, Wisconsin. Yes, <laughs> that Johnsonville. And according to his son... One of those jobs, where the father saved, was skinning calves at a packing plant in Milwaukee. And he was good at it.
5: Too good. He'd been in the union. He left the union because all the union guys, he was really good at his job. And he could do three times as anybody else could do. And they they threatened his life. And they said, we'll, we'll beat the shit out of you if you if you keep this up. If his father worked too hard,
6: they... Would have to work hard too Or look bad And either option was unacceptable to them Easier to do when you're not the one footing the bills And when his father became the one footing the bills In his small sausage operation with three stores And where his son was one of only seven people actually making the sausage He and his son got a feeling That the same people who physically threatened him Would now be threatening them in another way.
5: It was clear to us that if we didn't put in a pension or profit sharing plan or something, a retirement plan for our folks, we were gonna wind up with a union.
6: And almost no business of this size offers such benefits. They're usually just trying to survive and can't afford something like this that they'd actually want to do. But the two Ralphs knew what they had to do. After his dad's experience in a union, they weren't going to let that happen. their company and in order to offer benefits like profit sharing they had to change their business from a partnership to a corporation and to avoid triggering massive taxes with this change they split the partnership into two separate corporations a retail focused one with the shops that they owned and a wholesale focused one that sold sausage to grocery stores
5: that was interesting because I'm sitting there with the accountant saying, Well, we want to just split these up. And the accountant says, Well, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. And we have Dudley Godfrey, who's a senior, senior Godfrey and Con, 150 lawyers in Milwaukee. And he's sitting there with us. He was our counsel, my mom and dad, and this accountant. And, Oh, well, how about if we did this? Well, no, I'm not comfortable with Oh, okay well how about this or that or this or that I'm the one having dialogue personal, so. and you're 25 right? yeah. yeah well I'm I'm not comfortable with that either I looked across the table George there's a limit to how comfortable I want you to be you get it I'm not here to make you comfortable you're here to tell me how we can do this and I'm telling you my parents looked at me this guy's an older guy but I've had enough and Dudley looked at me, you tell me how we can get it done. And, well, so he said, well, if you really split these, and if you don't have anything to do with the retail, if you don't have anything to do with the retail, just a few folks in wholesale, your mom and dad, do the retail, you can have a division like that. I think that would pass. Fine. I thought that's what we are talking about all along, but okay, good. I wanted to do it wholesale. I didn't want to do it retail. Retail was a death. It was never going anywhere. At the same time, I said to my dad, Dad, we got to tell these people what we're doing. They're employees. Let's just tell them so they know. We're doing it. We know we're going to do it. Let's- no, you don't say a word until it's done. Why, Dad? Well, because you never know. I said, Dad, we, gotta, we should tell them, we're doing it. And uh, we should let them know we're doing it, we're working on it, we're finishing up the legal yeah. work. What's the harm in telling them? If we don't tell them, we're going to have a union here, Dad. He said, no, you don't say a word. On Monday, the telegram came in from the union saying, we have, uh, we have met with your people, they've all signed cards, and we're going to come up to start the process of negotiating with you.
6: Their gun was right. The union would make a move on their business and had already spoken with all of their employees without them knowing this.
5: Well, we had an election and the union lost the elections. Nobody voted for them, And the NLRB said, you have know, unfair labor practices, you destroyed the uh, majority. We're setting the election aside. You still have to negotiate with and that was it for my dad, he was really upset. So he had this really sharp legal counsel, and I said, we're gonna appeal this. He says, don't appeal. If you appeal it and you lose, then the courts are gonna be looking at you like a hawk. He says, you notice they said you have to negotiate. They didn't say you have to agree. Let's just negotiate for the next year and make sure you maintain your majority and that they'll be powerless. So I spent a year negotiating, and my dad had nothing to do with it. And that was kind of the end of it for him. So the employees were already on our side. So finally, after a year, right at the end of the year, I said, I think you got a pretty good deal here. Why don't you take it to your membership? And uh, it was a terrible deal. It was way less than what the guys were getting.
6: So you presented them a proposal that was less than the employees were currently getting? Yeah,
5: (laughs) and other bad bad stuff too. take it to your membership. And he had no membership, and I knew he had no membership. He turned purple, he turned purple. He was trying to control himself. He had a pipe, he used a pipe as a tool and kind of to cobbled himself down. And so instead of saying anything, he got his pipe out, and he was gonna light his pipe, he couldn't strike the match. <laughs> he turned purple, he was shaking so bad he couldn't strike the match. <laughs> I'll never forget. Richard Greenlaw. And will uh, never forget that name. <laughs> A few days later, we got a telegram saying that they've withdrawn their deal, which, which gave them the right to come back in a year. But they've never come back.
1: And Johnsonville, by the way, was already facing some pretty tough obstacles, as all small businesses are. It turns out only half of new companies ever make it past the first five years, let alone ten, only a third make it to ten. By the way, people don't know this. When a guy saves up money or a family saves up money or a woman does, to start that business, again, listen to that number. A third will survive the first 10 years. That means two-thirds are wiped out. And say you make it to becoming one of the largest companies. Let's take that just if. Your odds of staying there, really low too. Of the Fortune 500 companies in 1955, a mere 12% are still on that list. Many don't exist at all. By the way, have you ever heard of Armstrong rubber? Of course not. But they were big. Neither have I. And by the way, that's just part of, well, creative destruction and old jobs going away, new jobs coming. And be grateful to live in a country like that because the countries where the same companies are always up there, you can guarantee they're coddled up to big government and you can guarantee that no new jobs are getting created and you can guarantee that the economy is terrible. And again, it is very difficult to be displaced from your job. There's nothing tougher. But imagine never being able to get a job because there are no new jobs. And so there are costs and there are benefits. And by the way, the two Ralphs, and we learned that there are two Ralphs, they not only face those headwinds, the difficulty of just staying alive, but also the one of theirs being a family-owned company where when the second generation takes over, 70% 70% of them fail. With Johnsonville, they only got stronger. And in 2015, Ralph Stayer, the second-generation owner, did something, well, that's difficult to do in a family-owned business. He's letting someone out of the family run the ship. When we talked to him, he said, Look, this is a meritocracy. we got to find the best person. And he said he did. When we come back, the story of Ralph Stayer. The story of Johnsonville Sausage, a great American company, and for our money, the great sausage company in America, and the biggest sausage company in America, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our series, The Founding, this one on Johnsonville Sausage. And let's continue with Alex's conversation with its owner, Ralph C. Stair.
6: And then Ralph told me about one of the other early characters in their business.
5: There's so many people who do so many bad things in life, so many stupid, short-sighted things, and they just hurt themselves. Yeah. And if you just do things right all the time, it's amazing how it adds it. In. You can see it adds up pretty well. So this fellow, Donnie Sinkby, they worked at my parents' store in Sheboygan on Saturday mornings. He also during the week drove a truck, this jobber, Gus Home, for Sheboygan Sausage Company, which was the big sausage company back then.
6: That word jobber was a new one to me, so I looked it up, and it's industry lingo for a person with a truck with a perishable item in it, like sausage, and they go around wholesaling it, selling it to retailers for cash.
5: And Gus had two trucks. He was an older guy. He had a son, Richard Aho, and then Donnie drove the other truck. And Gus always promised Donnie, when I retire, you're getting that truck. You're going to be your own jobber. And so one Monday morning, Donnie came in to work. And the invoices used to say, Gus Alholm and son. They came in on Monday morning, and it said, Richard Aholman. And Gus gave both businesses, and Donnie was supposed to work for Richard. Well, Richard was not a very productive person. And Donnie says, I'll never work for that, Richard. So he came to my dad and me and said, would you back me if I wanted to go out on my own? You make great sausage. Would you back me if I want to? Heck yes, we will. So Donnie, he had enough money to buy a truck and he had to wait for the truck, but he started delivering it in a car or in a <laughs>
6: <laughs> Just a normal station wagon too. Oh yeah, yeah. I was, I
5: I shudder to think of how we used to do business. And way back then it was different. Oh, yeah. He got in there and he said, put our sausage in and started selling. He was working it. Within a year, all the Sheboygan sausage was not only his route, the other route too. Richard Allen was out of business. Sheboygan sausage was out of business. And Johnsonville sausage was in business. Within a year. So if you think that God doesn't have a plan for it, if you wanna say, oh, look how smart I was, look what I did. I'm here to tell you there may somebody there may be somebody out there that is that smart, but it sure as heck isn't me, all right? <laughs> yeah, you didn't plan that guy coming into your business. God had a plan. Right, we're only getting started, okay. Donnie puts the sausage into two stores in Fond du Lac, century stores, Godfrey Company. They had 90 stores around the state. Wow. I always looked at those stores and thought, geez, wouldn't that be nice to be in there? I have no idea how to do that. (laughs) So he puts this in there, and it's doing great. And Harlan Crouch, Crouch Brothers, they had two stores. But the supervisor for Century Stores came in. He looked and he saw that he had our products in the deli department and in the meat department. And the supervisor said, well, we've got to fix this up. You can't have them in both places. You've got to have them either one or the other. And Harlan Crouch looked at me says, you see that name on there, Crouch Brothers Century Stores? As long as that's under, that product stays there because I make more money on that than anything else in the store. You're kidding me. Oh, yeah? So they saved the invoices for a month, and the guy looked at how much sausage they were selling. He said, oh, my gosh. We don't do anything like this in any of our stores. Next thing we know, I have no idea this is going on. Nothing. And they were forgetting forget. Phone rings down the sausage kitchen. My dad picks up the phone. Yep, hello? Huh? Okay. Yep. I'm watching. I have no idea what's going on. Yep. Yeah. Okay, you're sure? Yeah, oh fine. <laughs> okay, whatever you, sure. yep. whatever you say. Glad to talk. Okay, no problem. Yep, okay, thank you. Hangs up the phone. I said, what was that? That was Jim Godfrey from Godfrey Company. They want to come up and see us about carrying our sausage. Huh? <laughs> Really? Really? <laughs> What's he coming? Where's it coming? He didn't say. He, didn't you ask him? I said, no. So now for four or five days, I'm bugging my dad. Call him back and find out when they're coming. Call him back. And, and this is my dad. Let him call us. Don't appear too anxious. So there's a lot of wisdom. Yeah. We were a good team. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> call him and then, you know... <laughs> so they come up, and we just got this little, you know, Johnsonville. We had this little butcher shop, you know. We have this little retail area, yeah. And we're sitting in there, and they're sitting. We're sitting there together in this little retail. We don't have an office. We don't have anything, you know, no office stuff. And Jim Godfrey, ninety stores, Godfrey Company. <laughs> so we like to do this. We're all done, and then Jim Godfrey says is there anything else you could do for us? And my dad says, didn't have to, the deal was done. He says, we'll give you an exclusive in Milwaukee. He goes, I tried to grab the words before they got to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no, What a no, smart no. question for that guy to ask. Oh, brilliant. It was brilliant <laughs> in Oh no, Dad! Uh, I thought you were gonna say, we're gonna give up our stores. No, no, oh gosh, no, no. That's why I do the line north of Plymouth. Yeah. yeah. Have to get started, who knows what's going to happen, but that Plymouth store was a coal mine. Oh, yeah. So, dang, we're going to move the good business. Next spring, Oscar Ward, the vice president of the operations for Pete Wigan. Another 80, 90 stores, but nothing in Milwaukee. It's perfect. I couldn't have taken them in Milwaukee. <laughs> Who <laughs> You think God doesn't set this stuff up? He, he comes driving through. You have to see where Johnson lives. You got to come off the railroad. You got to go. Uh, I was just passing through. I so thought i stopped stop and say hi. <laughs> yeah, You're fast. just passing through. right yeah, to where? Sure. <laughs> where were you passing through to? <laughs> Can't get anywhere from here. <laughs> so. They wanted to carry our sausage. So we started up in the valley with them. And we are doing really good. And we wanted to do a scene in Kenosha. And he said, You can do a scene in Kenosha. we got to have it in Sheboygan, too. So, I said, okay. And I, I was done. I had to have a chat with Dad. Because Dad says, Oh, we can't do that. It'll destroy our store in Sheboygan. I said, Don't, make Don't make a lot of money in that store. So all those stores, is because. Oh, no, 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 no. Those stores put you through college, Ralph. Yeah, and every night when I go to bed, I say, thank you, stores. Thank you so much, stores, for putting me through college. But they're the past, then. This is the future.
6: And the father ended up empowering his son. And the son turned out to be right.
1: And great job on that, Alex. And what a voice. Just a guy. It just sounds like a guy you might meet at a bar. And he is, actually. And we heard great stories about father and son. And we love father-son stories and family stories. We heard earlier the son gleaning wisdom from the father who said, son, wait for them to call us. Don't be in a rush. And boy, that sounds like an older person telling a younger person because we're always in a rush when we're young. And yet at the same time, when confronted with the future of the business, the son pushed back at the dad, and in the end, where the future was going, where the future was, the son was right. And that's a unique father-son relationship where they can have that give and take. I think we all long for that. By the way, if you get a chance, listen to our On Leadership series with Ralph Stayer. a remarkable story in which Ralph confesses that he almost caused Johnsonville sausages to go out of business because he was a selfish, sort of narcissistic boss. And one day, God got into his life. He got out of the way. And, well, all kinds of good things started happening when he gave credit to his people, gave power to his people, and just, well, just cheerleaded them on. Ralph Steyer's story, Johnsonville Sausages' story, here on Our American Stories. American Stories and we love talking sports here on our show and today we bring you the story of Chris Everett, one of the best female tennis players to ever pick up a racket. She was born on December 21st 1954 and we are going to hear from Chris herself and Faith brings us the story.
3: All of the players that I played were in tears on the court. Frankie Dura was a wreck, you know, and and Leslie Hunt was was really pissed off <laughs> i don't think we wanted to see anybody who was 16 years old outshine us part of the reason they resented her was when she was
2: 16 she was uh, you know a, l- a little snippy she didn't smile too much she had her nose a tiny bit in the air then all these other women are saying why should we let this amateur play
3: she beats us and then she doesn't even take the prize money that we won i think of what Chris was kind of representing to us that she could set us backwards if she won See, if an amateur won and we just started the tour, what does that say about our tour? So it was, it was just difficult. I'm feeling all these emotions in the locker room. I'm thinking, they hate me. They're snubbing me. I was very intimidated by them. We had a meeting during the Open, and I said, we have to stop this. She's the greatest thing that's happened to women's tennis. She's going to be our next superstar.
7: Those were some of the voices of the best female professional tennis players ever. But at the beginning of a tennis tour in North Carolina... In the early 1970s, little Chrissy, Chris Evert made her big debut. As a 15-year-old, she defeated reigning U.S. Open champion Margaret Court at this tournament. Everyone was stunned. She was so young and yet beginning to outshine those that had been competing as professionals for years. It was slightly embarrassing to say the least. But the mature ones, the professionals, who truly loved tennis grew to understand What she would do for the sport and for all female athletes. Little Chrissy Everett soon became known as Cinderella in sneakers and Little Miss Sunshine. At the young age of five, her father Jimmy Evert, a professional tennis player himself, began tennis lessons. Her dad made it fun for her. He wanted his daughter to have a hobby that she enjoyed. Everett told ESPN he'd say, Okay, ten over the net and I'll buy you a Coke. But of course, no matter how encouraging a parent is, a child still wants to make their parent proud.
3: You know, I think a lot of it is, is uh, wanting approval. Um, I know, I, I played tennis for a long time for my father. You know, he was my coach and my inspiration and I wanted to please him. Not that I didn't enjoy it, I did enjoy it, but for a long time, when I was a kid, you find an adult that uh, is willing to sacrifice a lot for that child and is their greatest supporter, and hopefully they don't, draw, they don't cross the line into putting too much pressure on the kid. I mean, my dad never got mad at me when I lost a match, let's put it that way, so that, that made me love him even more and want to do even better for him. But it's also, it's, it's just a need inside, and I'm not quite sure, uh, I'm not quite sure it's a good thing, it's a normal thing, but it's that, it's that hunger, that need, uh, you know, to I guess to excel in one thing. The fact that her dad never got mad at her when she lost was
7: essential to her striving. And by the age of 10, she had started playing junior tennis. And by the age of 11, she was nationally ranked. By 1969, she was ranked number one in the U.S. for girls under 14.
3: Because I played in the juniors. And it's not like all of a sudden, at 18, I hit the pro circuit without any experience behind me or any hope. What happened was, you know, I started playing junior tennis when I was 10 years old. and. When I was 11 or 12, I started winning 12 and under tournaments. When I was 14, I always was the best in my age group. And that sort of, that confidence builds. And then when you join the Pro Tour, when I joined the Pro Tour, my first pro match was when I was, I think, when I was 13. I went three sets with a woman who was like number three in the country. When she was 13. Now, having your father as a coach is not something everyone can do.
7: But she so admired and loved her father, it came easy. In fact, after winning Wimbledon at the age of 19, he was the first person she called.
5: When the phone finally did ring, I heard this little voice at the other end of the line saying, I won. With that, I got all choked up and I couldn't speak. And the next thing I heard was, Dad, are you all right? (laughs) But can you imagine your 19-year-old daughter calling you from England and saying, Hey, Dad, I just won Wimbledon. Every time I think about it, it still brings
4: tears to my eyes.
7: Chris became a pro at the age of 18 in 1971. She was ranked either number one or number two in the world from 1975 to 1986. That's a total of 260 weeks. Everett was also named the Associated Press Female Athlete of the Year four times. In 1974, 75, 77, and 1980. Now, Chris, she was different than her other competitors. Amidst the sass and mental breakdowns of many athletes of that age, Chrissy Evert kept her cool. So cool, in fact, that she was crowned Little Miss Icicle. Or the Ice Maiden. Her competitors would flip off refs, throw towels, and throw fits. But not Chris. Full of grace and femininity, she played tennis as a lady. Not only that, but she was small and dainty. And not as strong as many other female athletes. Here she explains how her father helped her.
3: My father at a very young age uh, had instilled in me, do not let your opponent see your emotions and see how you're feeling, because they'll use that fear. If they see a temper, they'll say, aha. So I was, that's why I was very the Ice Maiden and I think that frustrated a lot of opponents because they were trying to figure out you know what I was feeling. And the other thing was I, I am not of the mold of a Jimmy Connors or a Billie Jean King in the sense that you know I, I didn't feel like a star out there. I didn't feel like I had to entertain the crowds and, and show my personality. I was more I was a very introverted person. Everett went on from there to win 18 major championships. That's the third greatest
7: in women's history of tennis. Her main rival, Martina Navratilova, was her complete opposite. A bulky and intimidating Czechoslovakian, this rivalry is one that has gone down in history. 80 matches, 60 finals, 14 grand slams over 16 years with these two champions was epic. From 1975 to 1986, one of them was the number one. Without one another, they would never have become the athletes that they did. They would make each other cry practically every other weekend. Of course, with this rivalry and how early Chris started playing, there was some mounting pressure. She had shot out of the gates with such power and ability that people expected much of her. And Martina had gotten really good.
3: Well, I'll tell you, Martina, after she took over number one, she beat me 13 times in a row and I was a mental case. After a while, it was when I walked down the court, I was beaten. It's like, I'm gonna lose this match, you know? But that was 13 times in a row. Then the 14th time, I beat her in a tournament at Florida. Then the 15th time was, well, it's not the 15th, but the, the second time after that was the French Open when I did beat her. Fear of losing drove me. I mean, it was not the thrill of winning. It was, but maybe because I, I had been number one for some time and I knew everybody was gunning for me. So after a while, I was playing not to lose.
7: Chris was the first male or female tennis player to win 1,000 single matches and compiled the second-most career match wins of 1,309. Everett retired after 17 years, having won 92% of her matches. An astounding number. Best in history, male or female. For one 13-year run, she won at least one Grand Slam title. But... With all of these accomplishments, it wasn't until she had a child of her own that she found more meaning in her life.
3: I tell you what, winning Wimbledon was the greatest experience for about a day or two. I mean, you're on a high. It doesn't carry over. I mean, the next month, you're on to St. Louis playing a tournament. You're not riding on that exhilaration. Having a child, for me, is joy 24 hours of the day. You know, I love, I mean, I, I found my niche. I feel like I'm a mother, you know, and I feel like I'm a, a, I really enjoy being a mother.
7: And even with the blessing and love of her children, she knows that even they will not always be with her. Here's Chris Evert, one of the most successful athletes of all time, sharing some of the deepest and most vulnerable reflections of her life.
3: My, I feel like there's enough, There's a niche that I haven't quite found and it could be a spiritual niche I, I'm not quite sure I can't pinpoint what it is but I'm not you know I've, I've there's something else out there for me that's that's gonna take place you know when my kids are in school and and I'm gonna look around and, and see hey you know I've got all this free time on my hands what is important to me what really what do I want to do Billie Jean and I have talked a lot about that because she's, she turned 50 last year and she's uh, all of a sudden the last year or two really it's hit her you know the spiritual you know she's really evolving and, and very happy and at peace with herself and and uh, I think it takes a long time to find that I think it takes a long time whether you're in your 40s 50s 60s whatever and I haven't, I haven't quite pinpointed it and found it yet you know because I've been a tennis player I've been a wife I've been a mom but I know there's something else for Chris. This is Faith
7: Garcia reporting to you from Our American Stories.
1: And thanks, as always, for that, Faith. And Faith also did a terrific piece on Babe, Deidre, Zaharias. And you can hear that and all of our storytelling at ouramericannetwork.org. I was a huge Chris Everett fan. My brother was a serious tennis player. I got to see her at the U.S. Open back when it was at Queens and it was grass tennis. And one of the pleasures of my life seeing her, what a polite lady. And my goodness, the ice queen, you bet nothing, nothing. She showed nothing. The great champion, a mom, and a searcher, Chris Everett's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series. We brought you the incredible life stories of folks like Mario Andretti, Ed Renzi, and by the way, Ed went from making 85 cents an hour at McDonald's, rose all the way up to be the CEO there. So started at the minimum wage, right up to CEO, and Mario Andretti, my goodness, what a story. Go to ouramericannetwork.org, go into the search bar and hit Mario Andretti, or go to the American Dreamers Segments under topics, and you won't believe his life story. It does not get better as an American story. By the way, we also brought you Justice Scalia's story when he passed away. And one of his best friends we learned in that story was Judge and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. One from the right, one from the left, and yet they were dear friends. A model for all Americans to follow a coming together of sorts. And today we bring you the life story. Of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which on the surface you might think could be boring, given we're talking about a judge. But you're about to be surprised by this fascinating life of the second woman ever to be on the Supreme Court. Sandra Day O'Connor from Arizona was the first. And Ginsburg is also the first Jewish woman on the Supreme Court, a twofer. For the hour, we'll be bringing you highlights of her interview with the Academy of Achievements, terrific podcast, What It Takes. She first talked about the influence of her mother.
0: My mother was a voracious reader, and one gift that she gave me was loving to read. My favorite memory was sitting on her lap. And she would read books to me. We had a, daily, a, w- a weekly excursion to the public library, and she would leave me in the library in the children's section, have her hair done, and then... <laughs> pick me up when I had my three or four books for the week.
1: Ruth went to Cornell University and met her husband, Marty, there, and she said that he was the very first man she dated who actually cared that she had a brain, and he also cared enough to try to teach her to drive, a Herculean task.
0: I learned to drive um, at Cornell. I practiced on Marty's gray Chevrolet. I failed. I failed the driver's test five times. <laughs> I had to get a second learner's permit. <laughs> so and Marty having having infinite patience when I was learning to drive. Then when we were married, he would never allow me to drive with, if he was in the car, uh, unless he was deathly ill, unless he had a gout attack. <laughs>
1: On June 23rd, 1954, Ruth and Marty got married.
0: We were married in Marty's home. And his mother took me into the bedroom, her bedroom, and said, Dear, I'd like to tell you the secret of a happy marriage. Yes, what is the secret? It helps sometimes to be a little deaf. And I found that advice, has stood me in very good stead, not only in uh, a wonderful marriage that lasted well over half a century, but in every workplace I've served, dealing with my faculty colleagues when I was a law teacher, and even now with my colleagues on the Supreme Court. When an unkind word is said, a thoughtless
1: word, best to tune out. Best to tune out. Great advice, by the way, because it'll pass. It'll pass. And it might have just been said in the heat of the moment. Soon after their marriage, they had their first child, Jane, and later both enrolled at Harvard Law School in 1956. Ruth was the only mom at Harvard Law and one of only nine women out of a class of 500.
0: The nine of us were greeted by the dean, Dean Aaron Griswold, at a dinner he held in his home. He invited the nine women, and each of us had a faculty escort. And my escort was Herbert Wexler, later my colleague at Columbia. He was a man who looked more like God than anyone I'd ever seen. <laughs> I was totally taken with him, but but intimidated because he was so brilliant. Anyway, we had a meal. It was not a memorable meal. And there was no wine because the dean was a teetotaler. And then he had the chairs in his living room arranged in a semicircle and asked each of us, in turn, to say what we were doing at the Harvard Law School, occupying a seat that could be held by a man. And most of us were embarrassed by the question, but years later, when the dean became a friend, I realized what he was trying to do. The dean was not known for his sense of humor. Harvard didn't admit women until 1950. 51 was the first year the law school admitted women. There were still doubting Thomases on the faculty, and the dean wanted to be armed with stories from the women themselves about what they would do with with a law degree. So that's why he asked the question. <laughs> of course, my the, the women in my class didn't exactly comprehend that at the time. But so, one of them gave him a perfect answer. Mine was far from perfect. <laughs> but, but this was Flora Schnall. She had a distinguished career as a lawyer. She said, Dean Griswold... There are nine of us. Well, really, Ruth Ginsburg doesn't count for this purpose. So there are eight. And there are over 500 of them. What better place to find a man? <laughs> <laughs> and the Dean, I think, was horrified by that answer. But <laughs> she, she was the only one who treated it with the way it should have been treated.
1: You bet. She just teased him. She just teased him and went on and did what she had to do. Those were not the good old days, by the way. And now women have every access to law schools. They didn't back then, and today there are more women than men in law schools. Go figure that. And that's progress. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the American Dreamers segment. We've done Justice Antonin Scalia, and we need to do his best friend on the court, Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg. More on her incredible life story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our American Dreamers segment with the story of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And we learned earlier... My goodness, those numbers really are staggering. When she went to Harvard Law, she was one of only nine women out of 500 students and the only mom. And times have changed. Well, here is Ruth Bader Ginsburg on why she studied in bathrooms instead of at the library with the rest of the students.
0: Cornell in the early 50s was a great, considered a great school for girls because there were four men to every woman. It was a strict quota quota system, and that meant the women were ever so much smarter than the boys. But it wasn't the thing to do to show how smart you were. It was much better that you you gave the impression that you weren't working at all, that you were a party girl. So I did my studying in various bathrooms on the campus, and when I went back to the dormitory, I didn't have homework to do.
1: And as if Ruth didn't have enough challenges, the only mom and only one of nine women at Harvard Law, as we just said, her husband, Marty, was then diagnosed with testicular cancer.
0: We never thought about the possibility or never talked about the possibility that he might not survive. We were concentrating on getting him through the third year. And by the way... Marty went to classes for only two weeks, the last two weeks of the semester. In that semester, he got the highest grades that he ever got in law school because he had the best tutors. And Harvard was known as a competitive place. My experience was the opposite. His classmates, my classmates rallied around the two of us. And he got individual tutorials to help prepare him for the exams. How did I get through it? Well, I was able to get by with very little sleep. Because of the radiation, Marty couldn't ingest anything till midnight. And so between midnight and 2, we, he had dinner, my bad, hamburger usually. And then he would dictate to me his, his senior paper. And then he'd go back to sleep. And it was about 2 o'clock when I'd take out the books and start reading what I needed to read to be prepared for classes the next day.
1: My goodness. Uh, you can imagine that kind of a challenge. And having been through law school myself, I know what that first and even second year is like, and it just seems like you're overwhelmed. You're learning a new language, practically, a lot of Latin. You're learning to think in ways you've never had to think before. You're around people who are all tops in their class. You're worried about whether you're going to make it to whatever is going to happen in the summers. And then on top of that, Oh, my goodness, she finds out her husband has cancer. And yet what we learned here is that love, love is very powerful. And the generosity of all these students, you know, you never know what comes from these things. And believe me, law school, like so many of these uh, graduate programs, become very and fiercely competitive. But something else was tapped because of this tragedy, because of this problem. And suddenly these seemingly, uh, th- these seeming competitors by your side were suddenly your friends. And we're suddenly taking you along and and moving you along. Well, Marty graduated on time and a year earlier than Ruth. So when he got a job in New York, Ruth transferred to Columbia Law and became the first woman ever to be on two major law reviews, the Harvard Law Review and the Columbia Law Review. By the way, that just proves that adversity can be overcome. She found it a lot harder to find a job, though. She was a woman, she was Jewish. Two strikes against her. Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter flat out said that he wouldn't consider a woman working for him. She found academia more welcoming and first taught at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And on the side, she took up legal cases that advanced equal rights for women. And her very very first case was a rather unusual one, given her passion.
0: Marty came into the bedroom where I worked, and said, Ruth, I think you should read this decision. And my response was, Marty, you know that I don't read tax cases. He said, read this one. I I did. It was the story of a man who was never married. He took care of his then 93-year-old mother, and he took what the Internal Revenue Code allowed as a babysitter's deduction, which you could take for the care of an elderly, infirm relative of any age. So he took this $600 deduction, and he was audited by the IRS. And they said, you can't take that deduction. He said, oh, I've been told that there's an elder care, just like there's a baby care. The people who qualified for the deduction were any woman or a widowed or divorced man. Charlie March was a never-married man. He took his case to the tax court pro se. Meaning for himself? He, he represented himself, and he filed a brief, which was a model. No lawyer would have done such a thing, but it was just right. He said... If I had been a dutiful daughter, I would get this deduction. I'm a dutiful son. This makes no sense. And the tax court judge, in his opinion, said, I glean that the taxpayer is making a constitutional argument. But the next words were to the effect, everyone knows that the Internal Revenue Code is immune from constitutional attack." So as soon as I read that decision, I said, Marty, let's take it. And that's how Charles E. Moritz became our, our client.
1: Great story. And what was Ruth Bader Ginsburg thinking in taking this case? And why would this case that was about a man slyly
0: help women? I call the Moritz brief the grandparent brief. First, I, I understood the likely reception to my argument, and that is gender-based discrimination, what was then called sex-based discrimination. What are you talking about? Women have the best of all possible worlds. Think of jury duty. Yes, we don't put them on the jury rolls, but if they want to serve, they can go to the clerk's office and sign up, and, and we will add them. So they don't have to serve. Women are on a pedestal. They are sheltered, they are protected, and men have to go out into the large, cold world and earn a living. The The laws, the statutes, both state and federal, reflected that difference. A good name for it is the separate spheres mentality. The sphere of earning bread, supporting the family, that was the man's world, and the women's world women were to take care of the house and raise the children. That dichotomy. And the and the laws were shaped to fit that. That's why any woman could get the deduction in Charles E. Moritz's case, because women, it was well known, could take care of incapacitated relatives no matter what the age. But men, in fact, that was one of the arguments the government made in Moritz that he hadn't proved that he was capable of taking care of his mother so that the babysitter was a substitute for himself. Women would not have to prove that, because everybody knows that women could take care of elderly parents. That's so, so what we needed to show was that the image of women being on a pedestal There was something wrong with that picture. And that, in fact, as Justice Brennan put it years later, the pedestal all too often turned out to be a cage. So it was to try to promote the understanding that these so-called protective laws, more often than not, ended up restricting what women could do, sparing men's jobs from women's competition. So, how to say that in a polite way to, to get across the picture? That was that was a challenge,
1: and quite a challenge it was. Ruth Bader Ginsburg won that case, and then co-founded the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. She continued to find it helpful to have male clients when she came before male judges, and argued that laws had no business distinguishing between men and women. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers segment. The life of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And check out our hour on Justice Danton and Scalia. A remarkable story, a remarkable life. Justice Scalia saw the Constitution strictly. A strict constructionist, Justice Ginsburg, more of a living Constitution type. One a liberal, Ginsburg. One a conservative, Scalia. Dear friends, the two of them. They'd, they'd be very happy knowing Justice Scalia from heaven Ginsburg here on earth, knowing that we're doing this segment and have done both of their stories. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is our American Stories, and we continue with our American Dreamer segment. And sometimes it's entrepreneurial stories. Many times it is. People who come here with a dream and start a business. And sometimes it's a guy who wants to be a race car driver and comes to this country with nothing and becomes the greatest race car driver of the 20th century. And I think we can say that with ease because that's what everybody in the motor sports world said about Mario Andretti. And we've done this with Justice Scalia, you couldn't rise to a higher place than he did with a law degree. And now we're doing it with Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well. Two very different people who saw the law very differently and the Constitution very differently. And by the way, we're also dear friends, which we'll get to in a bit later. Here, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is talking about her most famous legal case from her activist period in her life.
0: Stephen Weisenfeld's case was even more compelling than Charles E. Moritz. Stephen Weisenfeld's wife died in childbirth. She had been a school teacher. Um, She earned slightly more than he did. When she died, uh, Stephen went to the Social Security office. He thought that if he worked part time, up to the, uh, the ceiling that Social Security allowed you to earn, the Social Security benefits plus what he could earn on top of that, he could just about make it and take care of his child and not go to work full time till the child was in school a full day. So he went to the Social Security office and asked for what he was told were child in care benefits. And he was told, We're very sorry, Mr. Weisenfeld, those are mother's benefits, they're not available. To fathers. So he was the person who immediately felt the effect of the law. But where did that discrimination begin? It began with the woman as wage earner. Women paid the same Social Security tax that men paid, but it didn't net for their family the same protection. Same tax, but unequal protection. So so we could say, Stephen Weisenfeld is feeling the effect of this discrimination, but it began with his wife, the wage earner, who was not treated as a full wage earner. She was a woman wage earner, and that meant she was secondary, she was earning pin money, no Social Security benefits for her family when she dies.
1: The case made it to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was the first time Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued a case before our nation's highest court. And by the way, almost no lawyers in this country ever get to experience that. I mean less than 1%, the 1% of the 1%. And it is hard, and you're facing these nine judges, and you open up your mouth and, bam, here come the questions. You've got everything mapped out in your head, and it doesn't matter. Very stressful, very stressful for even seasoned attorneys. Well, it had to be even more stressful for a newbie. She refused to eat that first day, and that first day of the argument, and its Supreme Court. And here's why.
0: Because I was afraid I wouldn't hold down whatever I had. I was tremendously, terribly, terribly nervous. I had a great first sentence prepared in advance, well-memorized. But I was... um, Well, nervous is an understatement. (laughs) But then I had this moment when I looked up at the bench and thought to myself, these are the most important judges in the United States, and I have a captive audience. They have no place to go. They have to listen, listen to me. And so then I switched to my teacher mode, and I told them things that they hadn't thought about, about how the pedestal often turns out to be a cage.
1: You bet. Just a quick pivot and what a change it probably was for her, thinking like the teacher rather than the lawyer. How do you out-lawyer those lawyers? By the way, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would argue before the Supreme Court five more times, and get this, she won five out of her six cases. She then decided she wanted to be a judge. And in 1980, President Jimmy Carter appointed her to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. And by the way, that's a feeder court to the Supreme court. Some of the greats have come from that court and the nature of the work that comes there. It's a lot of federal appellate work as it relates to the administrative state, the EPA, the FDA, so on and so forth. In 1993, president Bill Clinton appointed her to the highest court in the land, the Supreme court. She would be the second female justice in the court's history. And the first Sandra Day O'Connor would be her peer on the court. And despite them being appointees from very different political parties, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said they meant much more to each other than being merely peers.
0: She was almost like a big sister to me. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor is a truly great woman. When I came on board, she told me, That's what I needed to know to be able to manage those first weeks. She didn't douse me with a whole bunch of stuff that I uh, I couldn't possibly retain. At so many stages of my life, she gave me good counsel. When I had colorectal cancer, Sandra had had breast cancer. She had massive surgery. She was in court hearing argument nine days after her surgery. So her advice to me was, Ruth, you're having chemotherapy, schedule it for Friday. So then by Monday, you'll be, you'll be over it. You'll be over the bad effects. That's how she was. Anything that came her way, she would deal with it. She would just do it.
1: Then Ruth Bader Ginsburg told the What It Takes podcast about another one of the justices, and another one appointed by a Republican president, the late Hanson Scalia. And she started by talking about the Virginia Military Institute ruling that declared women have to be admitted to the historically men-only school. Scalia was the only dissenter of the nine justices, and thus wrote the dissenting opinion. Ginsburg was writing the majority opinion. Scalia, her friend, did her a favor that he didn't really have to do.
0: He came into my chambers with what he said was the penultimate draft of his dissent in the VMI case. He said he wasn't quite ready to circulate it to the court. and needed more polishing, but the term was getting on toward the end, and he wanted to give me as much time as he possibly could to answer his dissent. I was about to go off to my circuit judicial conference, I took the opinion draft with me. I started reading it on the plane to Albany. And it was, even for Scalia, it was a real zinger. (laughs) It it was. And so I spent the whole weekend um, thinking about how I would, in a restrained and moderate way, answer these comments. I mean, he took me to task for everything. I had a footnote in which I referred to the Charlottesville campus of the University of Virginia. He said, we must excuse this justice who is probably more familiar with schools in New York where they may have a campus here and a campus there. There is no Charlottesville campus. There is only the University of Virginia, period.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ginsburg was then asked if her opinion was better than Scalia's.
0: Oh, of course, because the the greatest thing for me was to have a Scalia dissent. He would point out all the soft spots, and that would give me an opportunity to improve the opinion, to make it more persuasive than it was before I got this stimulating dissent.
1: And that's the point, folks. It's not personal. Scalia always said that, too. We're just having an argument here among friends sharpening each other's arguments making them better and let's go out and have a drink when we come back the rest of the story ruth bader ginsburg part of our american dreamers segment here on our american stories Our American Stories, our final segment. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's story. Her friendship with Scalia, for many people who wouldn't know any better, seemed unlikely, but it was actually legendary and became the subject of an opera. And the opera was among their favorite pleasures to indulge in together. Ginsburg called them best buddies, buddies who once rode an elephant together in, in, in India and occasionally publicly debated each other, and without pulling punches. Here's a highlight from their debate at the Smithsonian.
4: You know, I've sat with four colleagues who believed the death penalty is unconstitutional. My goodness, the death penalty was the only penalty for a felony when the Eighth Amendment, the prohibiting cruel and unusual punishments, was adopted. It was it was the definition of a felony. A felony was a crime punishable by death. Every well. state.
0: these
4: justices thought, since I'm on the Supreme Court, it's up to me to decide this significant moral question because I went to Harvard Law School, maybe even Yale Law School. I must must know the answers to these questions. I, I
0: consider it an abstract question that I don't have to give the answer to. What I do know is you cannot have a death penalty that's administered with an even hand. That's the problem. Who gets the death penalty? It's a roulette wheel, and that's not a system of justice. Now, I don't think anybody would want to go back to the days where Mm. if you stole a horse, off with your head. This is the
4: roulette wheel amendment?
0: This, this, the, the question. And the court has said, you couldn't arbitrarily administer the death penalty. You couldn't say every fourth murder will get the death penalty. You could not have that kind of arbitrary administration of justice.
4: Ruth, if you have a jury in criminal trials, you're going to have arbitrariness. It's the nature of a jury. One jury may be more sympathetic to the defendant than another. So you want to abolish trial by jury and have everything decided by judges who went to Harvard and Yale? Who who will likely come out the same way?
0: (laughs) When it's a question of life or death, you can't have that kind of disparity. Well, the the people thought you
4: could, and I don't think it's our place to say that you can't.
0: Yeah, but the people at one time thought that 20 lashes were okay, and we don't think that's okay.
4: Yeah, and I think as far as the Constitution is concerned, 20 lashes are still okay. (laughs) Okay. The the more ridiculous you make the example, the less likely it is to occur because the people have changed. They have made the decision to change. It hasn't been imposed on them by by a Supreme Court. Anyway.
1: By the way, Justice almost always won these arguments head to head. It was fascinating. I saw one at Georgetown where the audience was preconceived. I think their notions were those with Ginsburg, but they'd never heard the Scalia argument the way Scalia does it. And he sort of just takes apart her arguments. There's just not much there. But they loved each other. You could tell. She wasn't offended that he was going after her argument. He wasn't offended at her. They were just going at it. And I think Scalia ate her lunch in that one. But again, other people listening might be thinking, oh, Lee, you're just so ridiculous. By the way, we don't do that kind of show. Thank goodness. Go to turn on talk, you know, your typical talkers for that. You know, they they come on before us, after us, and they do that beautifully. That's not what we do here. But that was just an example of how those two would go out in the public together and yet then go off and play poker and go to the opera together as well. And that's a fundamental part of the American character that I think we've lost, that we're allowed to just have an argument and then let, let's forget that and go on and do other things. We're going to close with some clips of Ruth Bader Ginsburg talking about her marriage to Marty because this was the most important part of her life. And he was a master chef, a master tax lawyer, and the biggest booster of his wife.
0: Marty was always, always my biggest booster. Um, He was a remarkable man. He was so um, sure of his own ability that he never regarded me as any kind of threat. Uh, On the contrary, I suppose he thought, well, if I decided to I wanted to spend my life with her. She must be pretty good. So, <laughs> so he, w- he was at every stage of my life my, my strongest supporter.
1: Marty contracted cancer and in 2010 was near death. And his bride, Ruth, well, she found something unexpected.
0: I found this letter in the, the, the drawer of the stand next to Marty's bed in the hospital. When we knew it was the end and I was taking him home so that he could die at home rather than in the hospital, Um, I was just checking to see that we had everything he brought with him. And on the yellow pad, there was a letter to me. And it reads, My dearest Ruth, you are the only person I have loved in my life, setting aside a bit parents and kids and their kids. And I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met at Cornell some 56 years ago. It was wrong about 56. It was nearly 60 years. We were married for 56 years. What a treat it has been to watch you progress to the very top of the legal world. I will be in Johns Hopkins Medical Center until Friday, June 25th, I believe. And between then and now, I shall think hard on my remaining health and life and consider on balance the time has come for me to toughen out Or to take leave of life because the loss of quality now simply overwhelms. I hope you will support where I come out, but I understand you may not. I will not love you a jot less. I'm just signing, Marty.
1: On June 27th, 2010, Marty passed from this earth. And on the very next day, Ruth was at the Supreme Court on the bench announcing an important decision that she wrote. But she didn't have to be there. Someone could have announced the
0: decision for her. The Chief Justice could have announced the decision. But I remembered to... um, my pancreatic cancer surgery the, I was home and rec- recuperating for about two weeks while the court was not sitting and then the court went back to sit and I, I told Marty I can't do this I won't be able to sit still for two hours listening to arguments and he said yes you will and it, it was because of the strength that he gave me that I showed up in court that morning, And I think. And miraculously, I was able to sit still. So I thought, what would Marty want me to do? And that's why I came to the court and, and read the summary of my decision from the bench.
1: What would Marty want me to do? A couple of things Ruth Ruth Bader Ginsburg has written over the years. Here was something she wrote about the time she was rejected by a law firm that was looking for its token woman and had hired one. Check that box off back then. She said this, and it tells you a lot about the nature of her character. You think about what would have happened. Suppose I had gotten a job as a permanent associate at a law firm. Probably I would have climbed up the ladder, and today... I would be a retired partner. So often in life, things that you regard as an impediment turn out to be great good fortune. She says this about having it all. I just read Anne-Marie Slaughter's book. She talked about, we don't have it all. Who does? I've had it all in the course of my life, but at different times. It bothers me when people say to make it to the top of the tree, you have to give up a family. Her husband, Marty, told the New York Times, I have been supportive of my wife since the beginning of time, and Ruth has been supportive of me. That's not sacrifice. That's family. And last but not least, on the work-life balance, my work-life balance was a term not yet coined in the years my children were young. It is aptly descriptive of the time distribution I experienced. My success in law school, I have no doubt, was in large measure because of baby Jane. I attended classes and studied diligently until four in the afternoon. The next hours were Jane's time, spent at the park, playing silly games or singing funny songs, reading picture books and A.A. Milne poems, and bathing and feeding her. After Jane's bedtime, I returned to the law books with renewed will. Each part of my life provided respite from the other and gave me a sense of proportion that my classmates, my childless classmates, I think she was saying here specifically, trained only on law studies lacked. It was an advantage, she said, to have that child in law school. Again, it's all a matter of your mind and what you do with these things. And my goodness, there's no doubt in my mind that that is true what, what Judge Ginsburg was saying I was a law student if I had, had a child I know I would have been a better and more focused law student this is Lee Habib this is Our American Stories the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg a great life a life well lived